Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Upfront. I'm Chloe Morgan. And I'm Rachel O'Sullivan. England keep on winning. They're unstoppable and unbeaten in 25 games after another good performance, this time beating Japan in Spain. Uh, we'll look into that and also uh, Beth Mead's recent comments, uh, a little bit controversial, uh, and explore the lack of diversity within the Lionesses and what can be done to address this across all levels of the game. Joining us again, a friend of the pod, Dulwich Hamlet, centre-back and head of brand at Football Beyond Borders, Ceylon Andy Hickman. Woo, woo, woo. Thanks, guys. Good to be back and good to also be promoted to friend of the pod. Thank yeah, you. we don't give them that easily to everyone who's on it. Yes. Do you get like a, like a blue Peter badge or something? Yeah, we've something to um, We need to start handing those out, really. We keep yeah, saying we that we've got these badges and they never really materialise for our guests. Um, so, yeah, that'll be something that producer Charlie is looking into ASAP. Thanks, Char. Um, right, I mean, to start off, I mean, so long since we've got you on and it's been such an amazing week for yourself and the Dutch Hamlet squad and the, uh, the red, is it the Red Pepper Army or the Pepper Army? Like, where did this come from? The Pepper Army. So, uh, not not to be confused with the uh, traditional lunchbox snack, mm. Pepper Pepperami. It's two oh, separate words. Okay, Pepper sorry, that's where I was. Army. I was going there, yeah. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, one after the win on Sunday, a pepperami was handed to Lucy Monkman, who scored a brace for us from the crowd, uh, which was a nice touch. But no, where does it come from? The pepperami came to the game armed with pepperamis, and then but they're two different types of Lucy pepperami. Right. I've never said yes. that word so much. Yes. So the pepper, as in. <laughs> As in chili pepper, spicy pepper, you know, because we used to uh, have a manager who was an amazing man called Farouk, who um, built AFC Phoenix, which used to be Dulwich. Um, and Farouk uh, used to always talk about playing spicy football, um, which then the motive became for the team, a chili pepper. And there was an, uh, an inflated chili pepper that comes to every game with us. And then we brought that into Dulwich Hamlet and, Tragically, actually, Farouk lost his life uh, into our first season as Dulwich. Um, and it's sort of his, his legacy. We've got little chilli peppers on the back of our numbers. Um, uh, we talk about playing spicy football. And now recently, we've had a new crowd of fans coming down who have cottoned on to this, this chilli pepper and they started calling themselves the Pepper Army. They've got banners, Pepper Army. I've got, uh, oh, I've got it here. Oh, it's not great because it's a podcast, but... Describe Let me it first. Oh, uh, what a story! I can describe it. Actually, I'm, I know. It, it, yeah, it, there's depth to this. You know, we're not just we're not just any old team. This someone designed. So for, oh, for listeners, sick. it is a Tabasco logo. 
but that says Dulwich in the middle. It says pepperami and it says spicy Sundays. Um, so that's that's the story behind that. That's the, an the excellent story. Will be available on a t-shirt soon. Amazing. I'm definitely buying one of those. Uh, available in the upfront shop coming shortly. <laughs> Links to follow. Um, I mean, we've got to talk about the amazing weekend that, that you guys have had. I mean, the crowd, obviously your pepperami down there, absolutely doing business for you guys and clearly working, being that 12th man that we all hate the phrase of um yeah into the second round of the fa cup uh securing that 3-1 win uh away to Ailes- Aylesford fc Ailesford isn't it yeah, yeah big game how was it i mean i heard that you didn't get a red card this week so you know credit to you. Yeah. i mean marginal, credit, marginal improvements <laughs> i think yeah it's the first time the club have reached the fa cup first round proper in our history so then to win it and go on to the second round was massive and i think we we did get a bit of luck on the draw we got a team in our league already that would just be in in the league so we knew that we could beat them but we also didn't want to come with like this is going to be a walkover and it wasn't because in the first five minutes there was a piece of calamitous defending from yours truly um, which ball bounced over my head then I went for the block and I don't know whether I got megged or not I need to watch it back but we went 1-0 down Um, so no red card this time but atrocious atrocious first five minutes and a terrible first half from us as a team and we we equalised just before the break um, and I've never been, been more relieved to go in at half time when it was one all. I couldn't have gone into that change room being like, sorry, guys, sorry. Well, I was anyway. But a much, much better second half from the whole team and a personal improved performance. And yeah, we came out and won two goals from Lucy Monkman, uh, one from our captain, Britt. Um, and it was it was beautiful. And when, when the final whistle went, I think, yeah, you don't get to experience those moments often. And the crowd were absolutely amazing. And it got really foggy and they started chanting. It got really misty. Really spicy. And they were all going, spooky football, spooky (laughs) football. And then they they started, football in a graveyard, football in a graveyard. (laughs) What? (laughs) And the funny thing is, when Aylesford came to us in the league a few weeks ago, I think one of their players said to the ref, Ref, please can you stop the crowd from singing? They're too loud and I can't play football. I can't concentrate. What? And the ref was like, no (laughs) (laughs) so then our crowd our fans came to the ground and they were singing um uh it's it's too loud i can't play football and then they were doing bjork quiet it was honestly they're such trolls it's brilliant it was it was very very fun but if you want a fun sunday do come down because it is 100 percent. we've got to get down to one of the games because like the atmosphere down at dutch hamlet is sick and i don't i want to get myself one of your kits as well because they're just so bloody they are oh. spicy. They're, that is a bit of spice. Um, I do think it's probably worth pointing out um, that this episode is sponsored by Pepperami. Just nice. Yes. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Thanks for the throwing, Rach. I should have done that. I, I'm not yeah. even doing my job properly, am I? I should have done that. <laughs> I, want, I want those freebies. Um, but yeah, I mean, you guys, next game against Tier 3 Gillingham in the second round. That's going to be a tough battle. But I mean, my, my money's on you guys. Yeah. I, well, I need day. to get through, Chloe, because I need a, I need a Palace Dulwich fixture. That's what <gasps> we need. Oh, right. do you the up, the up imagine battle. No we, longer a friend of the You pod. would come in in the third round. <laughs> yeah, we Palace would. come in the third round. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so if we win against Gillingham, we've got there's there could be an upfront. There's a game. one to three thousand chance that we might get to play each other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and I'm backing it. I'll, I'll well, do what I can with the FA, try and fix some things. Um, yeah, <laughs> legally, legally, Just, obviously. Well, match fixing. Yeah, yeah, match fixing and bribery. It's happens all, in the men's game. I'm all about that life now. now. You're a lawyer. Yeah, you know how to do it the right way. Anyway. <laughs> 
Anyway, before I get myself into masses amounts of trouble and, and probably an FA investigation, uh, let's move on to a lighter topic. I don't know whether you guys have been watching, you know, latest Jill Scott watch, I'm going to be calling it, uh, on the weekly pods now. It's been, um, it's been a fairly quiet week, I think, for Jill. I mean, obviously, she's been superseded, I think, by the massively dramatic arrival of our most beloved health secretary, Matt Hancock, who seems to be sort of running away with all the trials, people feeding him camel penises and sheep's vaginas and burying him under the floor and setting snakes on him. And it's just been, it's just been incredible to watch, really. Just a great bit of telly, but also controversially, should he be on the bloody telly on the first place? Um, yeah, Salon, have you managed to catch much of it at all? Are you a, I'm a celeb well, fan. I'd like to start by saying this was probably the best homework for a podcast I've ever done, mm. being able to watch I'm a Celeb last night and just thinking, this is what I wish I'd had at school. Just watch I'm a Celeb for <laughs> homework. Uh, I'm, I've revised because I've watched I'm a Celeb. Um, I have been watching it. Um, it's hard, though, isn't it? It's hard to, keep to, to get an hour episode every night of your life. Mm. You know, it is a big commitment. But... Jill's Jill's highlight of the last few days was when she did ask when Matt became camp leader uh, and was reading out the rules and she said just to be clear are these guidelines or rules gold Matt absolute gold and you thought you know what that, that political critique subtle beautiful mm. from Jill Scott the voice of a nation is Jill Scott now <laughs> yeah yeah um, right I think it's probably about time that we got into talking some about some actual football really with you're uh, saying Dulwich Hamlet third round first oh round of the cup was yeah, an actual kind football of, cut that out Charlie oh, cut that out that is foot in mouth that I mean I'll not that that's not on you. actual football um, but like the big the big sort of top tier elite Oh, you mean, sorry, you mean the international football? That's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, Mm. the international Mm. stuff. Yeah, England, Japan, that one. Um, Mm. Please come back to the pod. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I will come and I will bring my pepper army. Oh my God, that'd be sick. That would be absolutely (laughs) sick if we had a pepper army in the uh, the studio. Although we probably probably wouldn't talk about anything apart from just how incredible your crowd support is because we've (laughs) learned a couple of things from that. Um, But yeah, England 4-0 over Japan. Um, I mean... They're doing all right, and they scored 123 goals, conceded six, 25 unbeaten games under Serena since she took charge in September 2021. Um, I mean, it was a, it was an incredible game. England tested Japan repeatedly, but I mean, their goalkeeper uh, Yamashita in goal was unreal. I mean, Rach, you saw the game. What were your thoughts? Because this was an absolute powerhouse performance. I thought it was amazing because, you know, I know a lot of people have talked about Japan being in transition for, I don't know, years at this stage. Um, But England weren't playing their regular starting 11. We know how much Serena Vigman loves her starting 11. There was a lot of changes in this squad. A lot of youngsters in this squad. We talked in the last episode about her calling up some of the youngsters and they were getting minutes, which was amazing to see. You know, Ebony Salmon, we had Neve Charles, Esme Morgan, um, Jess Park came on, Lauren James, like... Amazing to see so many youngsters get games against a team like Japan who play some generally some unbelievable football and importantly have kind of quite a different style of football to maybe something England have come up against um, under Serena. So she did say in the press conference how important it was for them to play a, diff- a nation that plays like quite different kind of tactical football. Um, but England were all over them. Like, it was ridiculous. They completely dominated the game. Could have been more than 4-0. And more importantly, we saw some youngsters getting the score sheet as well. Like, I mean, this will make you sick, but Jess Park, who scored within, seven, what, 79 seconds with mm-hmm. her, like, first touch of the game. First player did. to score for the Lionesses, who was born in 2001. Oh. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, that's not a great start, that. No, it's not, is it? Personally. I saw yeah. that was, like, great for her, terrible for everyone else older than her. 
Um, but yeah, it just, it just makes you really excited for what's to come. You know, it makes you feel like the Euros obviously wasn't a one-off, but to know that beyond the World Cup, you've got these youngsters in the squad who understand the style of play that Serena wants to play um, and have come in and slotted in so well. It's brilliant. It's, it's very, very exciting. Yeah, I think, um, if anything, I mean, it's that reliance that I think and the confidence that that instills in the squad rotation that Serena has. I mean, you know, you might be sort of a little bit less confident or a little bit sort of, um, I don't know, reluctant to kind of put on some of your younger players who might not have had the international game time experience. But I think what that that showed by having so many youngsters out on the pitch and then delivering and not just delivering and scraping a win, delivering in a in a ridiculously elite style was um, was beautiful to watch. And I think, you know, I've got to touch on the Ebony Salmon uh, eight goals in eight games for Houston Dash. I know we don't get to see too much of her, obviously, playing out in the US at the moment. But seeing her come in, uh, Lauren James, again, I mean, she's been flying in the past few weeks. And again, another incredibly dangerous half from half an hour from her. So, um, yeah, I mean, Ceylon, did you catch it? What, what were your thoughts on the game? Yeah, I watched the highlights. I think, I think there were so many chances, but also what that communicated to me was a... Uh, I think what Rachel said, the seamless transition of that players can come into this system now and deliver the expectation that we all have, we all have of watching the Lionesses, the kind of football we want to see, but also what Serena has created. And I think that comes down to the culture that she has built, which feels so progressive and different to what maybe Lioness teams have been in the past. The fact that young players can come into that space now and feel so able to go out there, fit in, take risks, um, make mistakes, learn from those mistakes and, and be brave. It's like, that's how you get beautiful football. And I think that's a massive credit to what Serena Wiegmann has built and something I will not stop talking about because I think it's just what what gives it the edge, the, hun- the 123 goals. Like you don't get 123 goals in, in a, just over a year and concede six without playing like brave, risky and fun football. And to do that, you have to feel safe, supported and yeah, yourself and brave within yourself. So look, when you speak and the way that you speak and the the the, the structure of the senses that you use, I, I constantly feel inspired by everything you say. <laughs> <laughs> Like we've only, Charlie. We've Cut only out, just Charlie. got over the emotional uh, podcast oh, yeah. that we did a couple months back, and it was just, um, it was so powerful, it was so so powerful, and I just, I just sat there just in awe, like, oh god, like, <laughs> what adjective is gonna is gonna come out next? Because it's just, it, I just feel, I, I feel like I can, I can become a lioness now. Stop I won't it. be doing that. I've just retired. I'm going really red. Um, My face has gone really red. <laughs> But moving swiftly on, I mean, England play Norway uh, tonight in Spain. Uh, that's at you say, seven o'clock, right? Seven o'clock at ITV or half six. Basically, tune in from half six and, and try and find the game at some point on ITV because it will be another big test uh, for them. But again, I think, um, I mean, this is looking pretty confident. And again, don't want to speak too quickly about the, the World Cup chances, but this is looking like a good little foundation, isn't it, team? Yeah, for sure. Especially get a bleeding in those players now. It's a hard thing to do when you've only got eight or nine months to a World Cup. And we, we talked about it again last week. Is It's not just players kind of having to get used to that back-to-back tournament, but also managers and how they, you know, phase out players and bring in players in such a short space of time. And I think it's really exciting that Serena's being able to do that and do that so well. Cool fact. 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Well, I mean, the biggest story around the Lionesses this week came off the back of Beth Mead's uh, comments in an interview. Um, Just for a bit of context, guys, I mean, obviously you must have been living under a rock if you've not heard what's been going on. Um, Yeah, Beth Mead was asked in a Guardian interview if there was a specific reason for a lack of black players in England's squad or if it was coincidental. Uh, Mead's response, I think it's completely coincidental. Um, We put out our best 11 and you don't think of anyone's race or anything like that. I think that's more of an outsider's perspective. Um... I'll just stop there for a second. I mean, when I saw those comments come through in the article, I think, um, do you know, I, I was very, um, I was very on the fence. I think initially, I think um, it's difficult. Beth Mead is obviously a massive role model in the game. She does incredible things behind the scenes, inspiring the next generation. Obviously, with the Euros win and just being an all-round um, lovely person. Uh, and sometimes lovely people say the wrong things and get things wrong. And when they do, obviously, the consequences can be quite huge um but then that person then becomes a bit of a um a sort of token of of how not to do things or they they sort of get vilified for for that so i did i did feel a little bit um sorry for her i think obviously she's not really thought about the comments that she's made and the impact that that could have that it seems to come from a, la- a lack of understanding lack of education on the issues uh but i also appreciate she's been incredibly busy busy and it does take a lot of time to get to a place and space where you are educated and that is on the players to do that especially given their status uh in the lionesses squad and the impact that they can have but it's um yeah i mean guys what what were your thoughts on it because it's um it's difficult because i I don't she's not intentionally tried to cause any harm with the comments that she's made it's just it just shows a bit of ignorance for me i think um i think her comments weren't the issue but they're an example of the issue uh, that needs to be tackled and addressed. And I think, as you said, they do represent a lack of understanding. And, you know, many have said that her comments could be interpreted that she assumed the question meant the senior team. But for me, the as you say, when it, the first comments came out, it, I was disappointed, right? I, as as Ian Wright and Ennio Lucas said, they were they were clumsy, uh, disappointing. And I'm I'm sure, for me, I'm more disappointed about the follow-up comments on Sky Sports. Um, and while I appreciate that, she has had some pretty terrible abuse on social media because what else is this platform for? Um, I think she should have started her her answer to Sky with an apology. Um, 
without question whether or not she meant what she said or it was taken out of context or it doesn't reflect her beliefs properly, which I'm sure is the case. In this, you know, accountability is so important and the words, yes, they were clumsy and you need to recognise that they hurt people. And I think recognising that would have gone an awful long way. Um, and then she could have followed up with, it's not what I meant, it's not, it doesn't reflect my beliefs, fine. But accountability, first and foremost, for me, would have, would have gone an awful long way. So I think when I saw it, there was, there was the immediate instinctive reaction of, oh no, another white player has completely misunderstood the context, the nuance, the challenges that face young girls of colour and the progression into elite football. And, and has that's been compounded by the fact they haven't exposed themselves enough to... I don't know, critical race theory or thought more enough about about whiteness and how whiteness manifests and how people get defensive and all these kind of things. So there was like that issue. But then I also, when I, when I read it, I thought there's two interpretations here. There's one in good faith when we didn't have a Sky Sports interview. The one looking at it in good faith is she's asked, do you think there's a problem with racism in selection or you know, do you think? And she's gone. No, 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 no. Of course not. We pick the we pick the best players. We don't choose not choose the players because they're black and choose the players because they're white, which is a really flattening, pretty, like baseless response to a question. Right? That's naive in terms of it. But that was like the the, the good interpretation. Yeah, well, completely one dimensional. But that's a good faith interpretation. Oh, they've asked her that, and she's gone. Of course, it's not. We're not. Serena's not racist. She doesn't pick white players over black players. The bad faith argument is that it's a complete disregard that the issue exists and goes oh no of course if you're black you can get into elite football and and I, I just got there because not not anything because of my privileges because I live and have grown up in a white body like they're the they're the two good faith bad faith whatever happened there the underpinning thread that goes through that is that it's a complete lack of understanding and how the the issue manifests and how we get to systems where we have all white 11s playing for England and the complexities that come into that. And also too, just a very poor preparation from her part and her team on how to handle questions like that in the media. You are doing a book tour. You have spoken about social issues already. You've gone on one of the biggest radio shows in the country, BBC Women's Hour, and you've talked about Qatar and LGBTQ rights. Fair play to you. you. That also means you can't pick your struggles. You can't just choose your struggles. I mean, you have to be there willing to put your neck out for your black players who, in your teammates, for the black girl who wants to play for the Lionesses and doesn't see herself in the team at the moment, for the black parent who may not be able to get their daughter into a football team because they're... They've got loads of other things going on in their life or their world is completely different to the your white parents' world. And you have to do the work to say, I know that question's going to come. This is, what, this is what my take is and this is my allyship. Not flatten the discussion and move on and say, oh, no, that's not what I meant. I think that was my, my issue with, with what she said. But following that, the, the hearing that Righty rang her up and had that conversation... That's progress. We can't vilify and then keep someone in a box and say you can't learn, therefore you represent this. The fact that he's had that phone call, she's listened, they've had a conversation. Who else do you trust more in that space to do that from a friendly perspective? So for me, that's a, a, a beautiful outcome of what's happened. But the damage that was done in her initial comments, I think, is... Yeah, she needed to come out and, and apologise, but maybe she felt like, actually, I was, I was 
shoved into a corner with a question that I didn't really quite understand. And of course, I'm not a racist. So I'm going to say that, but that is the problem with whiteness. I'll stop there. Yeah, yeah. But also, you've got people around you. For me, that was the other frustration: is you've got a PR team, you've got the FA in those circumstances who you would expect to help you come up with a more robust answer. And if you didn't have that in the initial question, you should have it. You know, you're going to get asked about it again. And you know, the FA says they're doing the work, and and you know they've got lots of programs and everything, which is great. But that also includes educating your players. And in that circumstance, they had an opportunity to say to Beth, "Here's." here's how we respond to this and should have had a more robust account answer with accountability. Yeah. And part of the FA strategies, yes, there's discovered my talent. There's all these programs and investment and moving RTCs around and all that sort of thing, which we can come on to, but part of the FA strategy should make sure that your white players are really, really well brushed up and well-versed to speak about an issue that whether they not, whether they chose it or not, they represent because they're white and they're stents. They step out on a pitch with 10, maybe nine sometimes when one of the black players starts, white players and they represent something there and they, they have to be educated, well well read, listen to an audio book. There's so many at the moment that you can listen to to really understand how these things come about. And that that therefore is part of the FA's work in, in supporting this because then a black player doesn't, or a young black girl or a young or a black parent doesn't have to listen to Beth Mead's comments and actually hears a lot of Wibber Moy or Leah Williamson being an ally and they go, oh, of course my daughter can go into this or of course I can see myself in this space because there's people like that that represent me. No, massively, and I think even things like you know, obviously a lot of the, uh, the the women the women's teams are now you know taking the knee. I mean, at the WSL and Championship, they're they're still taking the knee, and I think you know making comments like that kind of suggests to me that you don't really understand what the gestures that you're doing at the start of the game really represent or mean. Um, which begs the question: Why are you doing it in the first place if you've not done that kind of research? Um, but I do think um, you know from a player perspective, um, and this might sound a little bit controversial given that I'm obviously mixed race. Um, but in terms of kind of the expectation of players to constantly know or to to have a, a great deep understanding of a lot of the societal issues going on, so things like the LGBTQ plus situation in Qatar and uh, taking the knee, and um, you know these, is it too much? I think with the training schedule the match schedule that you have to be constantly told that you've got to be a role model for all of these different issues and topics that might come up from a gender perspective uh, a sort of race perspective um sexuality perspective it's because that takes a lot of work that takes a lot of work and it's only very recently that i think these kind of topics have been given a lot of attention um so it's a lot of work to be doing in quite a short space of time i know that's a controversial question and i'm only asking it to pose some discussion no i, Bear with. I think that's fair but it wasn't long ago that people were uncomfortable speaking about lgbtq plus rights and equality in the game and now we see lots of players doing it lots of media and those involved in the game willing to speak out willing to use their platforms and we've got allies comfortable to talk openly about the issue and clubs doing rainbow armbands and you know rainbow days and and laces day and and i'd like to see the game get to a point where people can speak as widely and as comfortably about race and diversity in the game and that and that's myself included um you know i want to be better using our platform to speak about that i think there's a bit of an issue in how and when we talk about diversity and race and whether that be in the media or on social media we need to be doing it more like ian wright said it perfectly it's a systematic problem and we just deal with it in incidents so we end up Generally, the topic comes up when something has negatively happened, whether it's an inappropriate comment or something has been said. And suddenly we get, you know, the issue then is, is highlighted and, and everyone starts talking about it on social media and, and there's a, a big drive to, to make change. 
for me, we need to talk about it positively, regularly. You know, we should be sharing the initiatives that are taking place that are trying to tackle the lack of a diversity, the progress being made, the stories of the amazing people in the game doing amazing work. Um, and we should be elevating those those people doing that work and elevating their stories. And I think that creates a more positive environment for people to feel they can speak because, you know, rather than this, there's a lot of energy when something negative is said, but we need that same energy regularly, positively to talk about the discussion because that's how we're going to educate people and that's how we're going to foster an environment where people people feel co- they can comfortably speak on it. I'm going to I'm going to go hard on this one, Clara. <laughs> so this is what we want. This is what we <laughs> want. You've been taking notes. Take first of all. <laughs> I saw that writing stuff down. I was like, oh my God, okay, you've got something to say. Let's get it out. Number one, my first point, premise of of this argument is that I'm operating on the assumption that professional players in the WSL do have time. Yes, they train, they have matches. But, you know, I always think if I was at the top of the game, I'd, you know, learn Spanish or something. You know, you've got so many hours where you're just chilling. But I would say with, you know, the lionesses and the profile they have, it is a lot of, you know, fulfilling sponsorship, partnership agreements, a lot of media appearances, a lot of going into schools, things like that. And especially uh, sort of in the lead up into the Women's World Cup, they will be asked to do countless things and also getting your recovery and rest time in mental and physical just on that point. So hear that. But I think if you're going to do the sponsorship work... And if you're going to do the platform and the, the, the being a spokesperson for the game, then you got to do the work yourself and write a book beforehand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you've got time to write a book, you've got time to read some <laughs> James Baldwin. All right. I think that, that's what I'm saying. But I think it's about where the, the burden falls in this in this argument. Because of the system that we're in, that only a few black girls make it to the top at the moment, they then therefore have a huge burden of responsibility to represent all black girls and to show every single black girl growing up there and brown girls we don't see any brown girls in the team at the moment but um they are they are you have to be the person that represents all of these people you can't put a foot wrong so you're you're i guess the burden on your shoulders to represent and to get things right is huge because you're representing so much more than just yourself and that is an unfair burden at the moment compared to what the white players have therefore i think the burden needs to be lifted and split across a lot more of the white players' shoulders, which they grow up, they're going to have to do more work because they grow up in a country that denies its colonial history, that denies its institutional racism, that teaches us in in school that actually the East India Company was great in history because we brought tea and worked, worked with the Indians to build tea. No, actually, we enslaved a lot of people and killed a lot of people on the premise that British was better than everyone else in the world. That's the education that you get in school because it's so narrow. Therefore, you're not exposed to black literature. Michael Gove literally took anything that wasn't English or American literature off the GCSE English curriculum when he was the education secretary. So you don't get an exposure in, uh, into you know, African writers or Caribbean writers. You don't, you don't have that that experience so therefore you have to individualize that work going forward you are a product of the system that you've moved through unless you expose yourself to other things so if you're going to be at the top top of your game and have such a profile if you're going to write a book go on the media represent something you have to have done the work so it doesn't always fall on the black players shoulders and that you can go out there and speak confidently and say I think part of the issue in all of this to Rachel's point is that we don't speak about it enough in the right ways because people are are fearful because they haven't learn enough or they haven't spent enough time like immersing themselves in the in the different nuances of these debates and if they did and and learned some things i think there's 
what the one thing, if anyone was listening to this podcast and they said, where do I start? There is a book that came out this year. It's called A New Formation, How Black Footballers Shaped the Modern Game. And it's by Callum Jacobs. And it's a series of different writers. They're all writers of colour. And they pick different players. There's an essay on Hope Powell. And there's an essay on Anita Asante. But there's also lots of different um, black players throughout. And it's so much better than the original... The, 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 the conversation that race in football is reduced to, which is about incidents of racism and when people get it wrong, that's what we talk about in football. This is a really nuanced description of like blackness, whiteness, how it manifests in different, in different spaces. And there's so much learning in there that's like a really good place to go and start about this. Again, every time you speak. <laughs> yeah. The inspiration. <laughs> Can you do your... an audio book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, honestly. Um, the upfront audiobook coming to you soon. But um, no, I think, of, I mean, off the back of what, what you're saying, I think um, the only thing that I have a little bit of uh, sympathy thought with, in terms of what Beth Mead has said is that sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Um, and I think for me, I think for her, that would have highlighted that there's a blind spot for her in terms of uh, what she didn't know and now is will be very much aware of. And I think, like you said, I think you, you have to take that in isolation and appreciate that, you know, people will make mistakes, they will move on. And it looks like she has learned from that and is now having these great discussions with Serena, with Ian Wright, uh, and maybe trying to better educate herself for examples where she will be asked about it in future. Um, and I hope that's also something that the other alliances um, and other WSL championship clubs, national clubs, all clubs, will kind of take on board that they need to start to educate their players or make them aware that these types of issues are relevant, do need to be discussed. And, you know, I mean, potentially that is something that the FA should be looking at in terms of, you know, when you are stepping into roles where you're getting more visibility and you are going to be in the media some some more, that you should be, um, you know, given some more training, education about what your thoughts... So you can develop your own thoughts and ideas on, on this situation based on your own experiences. Um, because I don't I don't see that happening. Like, when you do coaching badges, there's sort of a diversity module and you sort of... You have to have that module and have to have that education to step up to the next level. It's a very, it's a very small, tiny, tiny module. Um, but I feel like that should be something that, that should be adopted by players because I think they're going to be asked these questions more and more. Um, but I think from your perspective, obviously, Ceylon, you, you do a lot of work in, in this area. Um, and in terms of accessibility, just sort of for our listeners' perspective, what kind of issues do you see at you know, grassroots level going up into academy RTCs uh, from, from your players? It's still so many and they're the ones that are wheeled out a lot, I guess now now the conversation is, is much broader on the problem of race in women's football since the Euros, I'd say. And I always remember I took, it was four years ago and I took the, the group I talked about in the last podcast, the, the Lamfranc girls, uh, the, the GCSE results day girls. Oh, I don't start that again, we'll be in bits, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> They were in year seven and year eight and I took them to um, England, Australia at Craven Cottage and um, it was their first FPB trip and they were so excited. They were like making loads of noise outside the stadium as you, you all saw but, uh, during the Euros. And we got them in the stadium and I sat with a few of them and um, Jemima, one of the girls, a uh, black girl, turned around to me and said, so where are all the black players? And I was like, it's a really good question, Jemima. She was like, there's one and she's wearing an Australian shirt and she's not even on the pitch. And I was like, it's a really good question. Let's talk about that. And um, yeah, we, we spoke about why that was and what in her lived experience maybe thought that she could or couldn't be a footballer or allowed her both in what she sees of the game, but also her material conditions and the way that she can move through the world as a 12-year-old or 13-year-old who might want to play football. And I think if you take a... 
a black girl from South London who has grown up in, uh, yeah, in, in a working class community um, whose mum or dad or parent or carer works multiple jobs and doesn't have maybe a car then if your 12 year old girl comes home from school one day and says oh, I want to go and play football in um this club and it's like okay well how do we get to this club oh it's um two three buses uh to maybe Dulwich from Peckham where you have to go you know go whatever it's uh 7 30 kickoff at training till 9 p.m okay cool well how is that 12 year old gonna get there mum's working seven seven thirty till eleven. Um, you getting on the bus as a twelve year old in a city, probably not all right. It's got dark, so I don't really feel comfortable with you being out there. You may or may not have credit on your phone, which means that you are safe and can call someone. So actually no, we're gonna say no on this occasion. Um maybe in the summer you can play again. Like that's the kind of things and then and then you that's just at a very micro grassroots level. You've you've got excited about football in school and you want to keep playing outside of school. Then if you're thinking, well that player's actually really, really good Right, well, where's the step up for them? Where's the RTC? Where's the, where's the club with the pathway for them? And the problem, which has been really widely reported, is that RTCs have, have moved out of city centres, basically, and they're not in these urban areas where lots of girls of colour are growing up. So then, therefore, they're out in Cobham or they're in Borehamwood or whatever, and they have to get out there for Chelsea and Arsenal. That's a, it, it, I've just described getting from, Dulwich to, from Peckham to Dulwich on a bus, which anyone who knows South London is about 10 minutes on a bike it's it's really 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 difficult and i think that's at a very very basic level what's happening no i've got to agree with that and i think um i mean that was something that i, I was at a, a london youth um sport um network event on friday and we were sort of talking about some of the issues around you know how we increase black participation in sports and the kind of barriers and challenges to that and and you pretty much echoed my point. I mean, if you're you've got a child who's in a situation where it looks like they've got some serious potential there, you know, the chance of them getting to Cobham or um, you know getting somewhere like Boreham Wood, in which the both of them in the arse end of nowhere, um, are very very slim, and that's only going to limit their opportunity and limit their chances. I mean, and you're also talking about you're going to have to need to have a, a parent or guardian who is able to take you there, who doesn't have the work commitments that they do, who also has a car, who can also afford the petrol uh, four or five times a week to take you there, and the boots and the gloves uh, and the kit, um, and take you to the away days as well, which could be Southampton, Portsmouth, Brighton, any of those places. So that's your entire weekend gone as well. And I think the fear that I have, I think, seeing players come up is that the game is going to become very elitist um, and it's only going to be those players who can essentially be able to pay to play um to have those opportunities because they you need that infrastructure you need that family support or friend support or whatever it is in that home environment to be able to access those things and a lot of kids um aren't, aren't in that position and i think at this point in the discussion it's really important to to zoom out and take a step back and say because it's really dangerous that you get into pathologizing the issue onto certain bodies and saying well black people are poor in this country or brown people are poor in this country whatever and I think you have to zoom out there and say obviously obviously there are lots of instances where that isn't the case and there's also lots of instances where young 
children growing up from working class households are white, of course. Oh, massively. I think that that situation is not so much a racial one as a socioeconomic one. Um, exactly. But yeah, and I then, completely agree. So that's when you have to zoom out and you do what Ian Wright said, where you say, let's look at the systemic and, and beyond football. Why is it that we live in a country where if you are black, you are more likely to be growing up in that in that environment, to be growing up in areas of low socioeconomic advantage and, and growing up in, uh, yeah, in poverty or having to work mo- multiple jobs? And that's the question is like, because this country has a terrible history of race and it has a lot of institutional racism baked into how it operates and how it works. And, and I think, you know, you, you, for a player, like if we go back to that point about Beth Mead, you have to, you have to be aware of this full context and how the macro and what's going on at a national global scale because of deep rooted history and how the economy has been set up in this country impacts then the lived experience of a 12 year old black girl from south london or south birmingham or south manchester or wherever she might be growing up in an inner city and how she got there and how she came to be and then work out well what might be the barriers for her stopping football and i think that's the thing that we often miss in in this discussion is you know when we're lobbying liz truss or trying to say get girls football on the girls curriculum let's also draw attention to why do we have to lobby liz truss in this because his, like, maybe I'm going too deep here, but <laughs> systemic policy decisions have relegated certain bodies to financial positions in this country. And that's something that needs to be addressed and also or even aware of when we're talking about this. Bringing it back to the, to the women's football world, if you like, it's just not offered to girls in the same way that it's offered to boys, first and foremost. So in terms of a lot of these training facilities, as you said, these RTCs, these centres of excellence like that do exist are just not in urban areas they're they're pushed out uh, on the edges of urban areas i mean just look at half the grounds that these wsl teams play in like they're miles away from their their the main stadia first and foremost it's so it ends up from top down it's harder to access women's football so if you haven't got the financial support to actually do that you know a lot of the stories that we hear from players coming up in the game or maybe <clears throat> excuse me established in the game now talk about the hours and hours that their parents took having to drive them all ends of the earth to to get to football and to train so if you haven't got that kind of level of financial support like it's just it's it's a it's a difficult thing to do anyway but it's made all the more difficult by the fact that the game is already you know difficult to reach just to illustrate rachel's point with a with a story i used to work in a, a boys school in peckham um state boys school near queen's road and um, I'd finish an FPB session, I'd come out on the road and there'd be uh, about four or five nice black cars basically lined up, taxis. And um, I always used to be like, oh, what are they for? And they were Brighton Football Club sending cabs to Peckham at the end of school to pick up some boys to then drive them down to Pe- to Brighton for training. And they did that multiple times a week because those boys were a commodity, because those boys were valuable. They needed to develop them because there's a business in men's football, right? And there isn't the same thing in women's football. So if I was working in another school in Peckham down the road and I have one girl there who was like incredible. She's, her name's Luna. She's been on um, the South of the River documentary on, on Netflix now. She's 16 now. When she was 12 years old, I'm like, you are insane. We need to get you into a team. And for her, there was no car. There was no, there was no WSL club willing to come up Put, you know, pick her up from school at the end of the day. And that for me is the really pronounced difference in because of the money and the investment that we have in the men's game, 
those boys were able to do that and perhaps part of the reason that the England team is so much more representative of this country that we live in on the men's side whereas on the women's side that's a parent who's having to pick you up at the end of the day and probably sacrifice on income to be able to take that time out to pick you up to drive you four hours and back there and back to Brighton to play that game or be in that training session. I think, I mean, that's obviously feeding a little bit into sort of intersectionality because I think um, obviously the the treatment of, you know, black and, and white players uh, are there completely different. The treatment of men's and women's players are, are completely different. Girls and boys players are completely different, obviously based on the financial resources and also what the club are willing to invest given, like you said, how much of a commodity they are and how much of an investment they are sort of later down the line. Um, but I think obviously the issues aren't just in accessibility. It's also in the sort of treatment of uh, non-white players once they get to the sort of higher levels. I think, you know, based on my own experiences, I, I was one of the very few when I was doing my WSL year who were in the WSL. I think there was only a handful of players at, at best at, at that time. And and I think in the squad of, uh, what, 22, 23 of us at Spurs, it was only myself, uh, Becky Spencer, Jess Naz, I think, out of a squad of 23 players. And, and bearing in mind, we're a, a London-based club. London's obviously a very diverse, multicultural city. But to have, what, less than, um, what, just over 10% of your, your players uh, coming from non-white backgrounds, I think, you know, you do look around and you are like, well, where the hell is, how, how, is this, how has this happened? How have I got here? How have other people not got here? And I think my route into sort of elite football was a little bit, more different because I had never expected that I'd ever be in elite football to, to start with. And it just sort of happened through a, a series of very lucky uh, promotions. Um, but I think we started off back in the sort of the national side when we were in, in the in the, um, the national league being a fairly diverse squad. I think it was probably about half and half um, in terms of black and mixed race Asian players that we had. And then as soon as we started to get promoted, you did see a dropping off of those players. And I, this is not me saying, Oh, okay, there's a systemic racism problem in Spurs at all that's really not where I'm going with this but there was a complete lack of diversity the higher up in the sort of ranks we got um, and then you get into WSL and you find that actually you look around and you are one of the only few players to get there um, and I think I've got to touch on obviously the Enia Luko um, situation a, a few years ago I mean her experiences of, of being uh, at the elite level um, she obviously had quite quite a few issues with the, the case that she brought against the, the FA um, Mark Sampson wasn't it at the time um, but she was reportedly portrayed as, a, as an angry black woman uh, throughout her, her time uh, with the England squad and this was around 2017 and I think her issue was that there was a sort of stereotype around black players that they were seen as um, aggressive or that they were um, challenging to, to manage or to, to coach in some way um, and I know Hope Powell as well also felt that she suffered this kind of stereotyping as being a more difficult manager or, or coach um, yeah I, I wonder if you guys had any um, sort of thoughts on, on that perspective from the sort of treatment of, of players I think obviously your lived experience is, is, is really important in this Chloe but I think what I've seen in terms of there's a there's a there's an interesting maybe a hidden phenomenon that happens that people aren't aren't really aware of and i think that is when black leaders create spaces or or uh in any environment in life i think that a black person is led by a black leader and obviously i'm a white person so please <laughs> just come in and tell me that this is wrong at any point but like there's there's like there's a lot of theory on this as well around like cultural signifiers and things that say are 
you know, we're part of the same community, whether it's hair or diet or things that happen in culture that make you feel closer to, to people, make you feel like you it's okay to be yourself in this in this space and I think the example I would use in, in Callum Jacobs book actually he, the essay on Ian Wright he says at Palace he was one of um one of very few black players but when he moved to Arsenal there was like five or six of them in the changing rooms and he talks about that but that moment and that team being one of the most joyous periods of his life because he finally felt like he could be himself because it was like permissible to be black and to be proudly black in that space and I think what then happens in white-led spaces we don't really realize it because as white people because we're just like oh this is how I've always lived life because most of the spaces that I move through in my life are led by white people or the society I live in has, has been led by white people and so therefore when a black player comes into that space they're like oh you know they might not get things about my hair or about my food or about my family or about all these kind of things so I have to kind of minimize myself and fit into this this white environment whereas if you have a black coach or a black leader suddenly there's already maybe and maybe I'm reducing it or flattening it too often but my assumption would be that there is more of a space to be like cool I see myself in this space and I can I can be fully myself with all the different parts of my tradition and my culture and therefore I can play better or feel like I can be here longer and perhaps if you look at the England men's team you see some of the white players like Mason Mount, Jack Grealish, all these people they've been around black people for a lot of their their careers and their time and I think maybe that is also uh you, you, that's a stark difference I would say to the Lionesses team where it's like predominantly white white led always has been and I think maybe there's some I don't know Chloe if that speaks to any of your experiences in football teams and and who you've been led by no massively I think the majority of my kind of elite career in championship and, and in WSL I've always been managed by white coaches had white managers uh, predominantly white teams um, even the, the sort of backroom staff in terms of you know strength and conditioning uh, physios always been predominantly um, white staff and and that's not a um, that's not a, a criticism anyway because they've been I've, I've never felt uncomfortable with with any of those staff so it's not a sort of um I don't want to sit here and say oh, that's, that was a really bad thing I had some really bad experiences I didn't I had really positive experiences with that but it, I think the older you get as well you do start to appreciate that um you know you are only one of a, a few and you do start to sort of ask those questions because I think when you do grow up in predominantly white environments I mean the area that I grew up in was very white my school was very white my work in law is very white football is very white so you do you kind of get um used to those environments so you don't challenge it because it, it, it is the norm and it's only very recently and I know it sounds maybe stupid and naive for me to say as, an, as a mixed race player but really only off the back of you know what happened a couple of years ago with George Floyd and people really starting to pay attention to the race agenda that it was something that I started to pick up on like why did I have that experience when they said that what did that actually mean or why am I one of the only people here so for me my own race education has been very recent um so and I, and I do look back and out at my experiences and sort of question and challenge why certain things took place and, and question why, you know, when I have the goalkeeper coaching camps with the, the, the company that I've got, why the predominant, like literally 95% of the kids who turn up, 96%, 7% of those girls are, are white. And despite me being mixed race, gay, female, I still find that there is a certain type of um, sort of player that will turn up to, to these camps. So, um yeah, there's a lot of amazing discussions happening at the moment, but I, uh, yeah, I've, I've got to agree that it, it's um, 
they're difficult questions to ask yourself. Um, and I, I understand and appreciate the FA are doing some things to try and rectify that. I know they're doing the sort of 100 coaches programme, trying to increase diversity at the coaching levels, trying sort of, you know, you can't see it, you can't be it if you can't see it type um, thing. Um, but I do think a lot of that does come down to, again, what you were talking about, Ceylon, is accessibility and these girls, um, you know, being able to have those access, the access to those opportunities, because that that's the biggest barrier. Um yeah. I think the other thing, like we talk a lot about the external work that's going on, the programs and stuff like that, but the same level of work needs to go on internally in these organizations and these clubs. It's not just about, look, we'll we'll put on these uh, sessions or, or whatever it is. Like there needs to be stuff done internally with the people who work in these organizations from top to bottom. You know, you need to be educating your internal staff because for me, going out and saying stuff publicly needs to properly reflect the people who work there and you need everyone bought in and educated into into what you're saying so yeah it's it's great that the FA are, are, are doing these programs but I do hope that there is an element of education going on internally with staff because you know I, I obviously don't have the lived experience you have or as much experience internally in, in football but for my old work you know which was in a, a policing setup that was my biggest issue was, and I worked in comms, was the the real desire to start doing loads of stuff publicly. And, and I'm like, well, we need to get our house in order first and we need everyone to be, you know, understanding these issues and supporting the work that we're doing before we start trying to tell everyone, look how great we are. It's like, we all need to put in the work. It's not just kind of these external programs, but all the internal stuff as well. All right, this weekend, Arsenal v Man U. Saturday at 5.30 is obviously, again, I'll be watching following Man United's journey to their first title. Um, <laughs> guys, will you be watching this game? I'm assuming, Rach, you're coming back from the US to see that one up front, aren't you? Of course you are. Yeah. I will be there, yeah. Looking forward to it. Big, big clash at the Emirates. I think they said there's over 33,000 tickets sold already. Um, do you know what? I was so wrong with the Manchester-Chelsea game, so I'm not even sure I should even bother trying to predict this. But um, I think there's been like there's been a few injuries over the international break, so for me it's very much who comes back fit, what teams are starting. Um, I imagine Mark Skinner will have learned a lot from the Chelsea game, uh, which perhaps we'll see implemented in the Arsenal game. So really, again, a tough one, a tough one to call. All right, flagpole in the sand. Uh, Arsenal Always Man United middle, score will be saying. Oh, oh you're going for a draw. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Let me think. Oh. Go to Salon. Let me think. Let me think. All right, Salon, you'll be catching up with the game. Are you going to be down there or just watching it? Or I will be there. I will be there. And I'm saying it will be 2-1 Arsenal. Oof. Okay, bold. I like that. No hesitation. Straight in. This is what's happening. Rach, you could sort of learn a few lessons from that. Go on. All right, Jesus. Uh, I was going to say two on Arsenal, but now I'll just say I'm copying her. So, um, three, two, Arsenal. Yeah. All right, well, I'm obviously not going to sit on the fence and go completely the opposite direction. I'm going to go 2-1 Man United um, yeah, at the Emirates, which is absolutely bloody ridiculous, um, even by my standards. But... Um, Miracles do happen and uh, Man United have got to take down one of the big beasts at some point this season. So it's going to be this Agreed. weekend. It could yeah. be, it could very well be. All right, gang, uh, thank you so much for the discussion. Uh, that's been really insightful and lovely to hear from from both of you on um, yeah your own experiences. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's time for us to, to wrap up, really. I mean, we've been talking now for about 
it's near enough an hour um that was chunky um thanks so much for listening to upfront if you've got any questions for us hit us up on twitter i am at morgie underscore 89 rachel's at girls on the ball and ceylon is at ceylon andy and that is i not why we'll see you next week Upfront is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.